It is 9.37 a.m. on Thursday, December 19th, 2019. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the LDS Live podcast. Well, the day has finally come. I am interviewing Ammon Bundy. Ammon, I don't know if you know this, but uh, one of the reasons I actually started this podcast in 2015 is because I wanted to interview somebody from your family, believe it or not. That's uh, that's one of the reasons I began the podcast. Uh, now the day is here. So uh, how have you been? I'm doing well. Good. Very well. Well, um, your story is quite amazing. Um, just uh, now a lot of people wonder, why do you talk so much about the Bundys? Well, because uh, your family is definitely a family that stands up for what you folks believe in, don't you? Yeah, I think we've we've shown that. And, Absolutely, and maybe and even just and maybe become that. You know. Yeah, I've always uh, I've always admired that about you. Uh, even though I've had some disagreements with you, I've defended you on Facebook because here's the problem: if uh, they come after you, the government, that is the BLM, any agency out there with, tied to the government, they can come after me or anyone. And do you think the the government was using your family as a test bed to see what they could get away with? Well, I certainly believe that they learned a lot, whether that was intentional or not. I think they learned a lot about, you know, the American people, uh, a lot about, you know, the media, uh, a lot about, you know, personal or social media. Um, and uh, and also where the people were at. I think certainly they learned a lot, as did we and many others. What do you think the, the government learned? Let's start there. Well, uh, they certainly learned that they were not able to just, you know, take something by force uh, just because they wanted to. Um, they also learned that even though the, uh, you know, the, the federal courts, you know, ramrodded, you know, these decisions and, and the taking from my family, they learned that the American people weren't willing to just accept that, that just because it supposedly was, uh, you know, justified through, uh, through court decisions that the American people weren't um, going to just accept that. And that people from all across the country would come and defend, uh, you know, an individual and his rights. Um, you know, they, they learned a lot of other things, too, you know, as far as, you know, how people, you know, assembled, you know, you know, a lot of, a lot of little details. Uh, but those are some of the kind of the specific things I, I would say that they learned. I assume that you're familiar with Randy Weaver, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, you can, you hit on something here that I want to branch off to uh, branch off a little bit. Um, I'm sure you know who Bo Greitz is. Yes. Okay. He did a press conference when Randy Weaver and his family got off the mountain from Ruby Ridge. And he said, I'm paraphrasing it, but he said, the government learned something today. The government learned that common sense 
are that sometimes common sense prevails and you don't always have to do something out of a playbook. Would you agree with Bo Greitz in your case, if he were to say that to your family? Um, yeah, I would have to agree with that. I think that's accurate. Um, you know, I think people realize that, you know, here's a family and we're certainly not alone, but there's been ranching in this area for a hundred and I think at the time, like 137 years, um, that we've established rights, uh, in many different ways. Uh, some of these rights are deeded, um, and that it just doesn't even make sense to come and try to, you know, remove us from the land. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think, you know, in that sense and others that Bo Greitz is right. Yeah. So, uh, Take us through, uh, let's see, you started having run-ins. When did the standoff, or when did this whole thing begin? I know you're, you'll probably say in the early 90s, but I first heard about you the Monday after General Conference in April of 2014. I actually happened to be listening to Brian Hyde through my iPhone uh, because I, live in Saint, or I lived in Salt Lake at the time. I couldn't get him down there in St. George, so not on the radio. So I had to listen to him through my iPhone. And he said, this is one of the few speech free zones left being sarcastic. I had no idea what he was talking about. And then he mentioned your name and said, you may not like Clive and Bundy, but, and you may think he should have paid his fees. This goes beyond that. And then I started listening. So take us through what happened. I know you might be tired of that, but for new listeners on the podcast, because a lot of people, believe it or not, have forgotten who you were, believe it or not. Well, you know, uh, I'm the third son of Clive and Bundy, and my family's been ranching in the southern Nevada desert since 1877. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not a whole lot that we've changed. Uh, we still have to you know, ranch and or at least my, my father and I don't live on the ranch, but my father, uh, a couple brothers do, and they still have to ranch basically a lot like they did a hundred years ago because it's a very arid place. They have to use horses heavily. They trap and, and anyway, not getting into that too much, but you know, this ranch has been in our family for, 140 years and ultimately the you know federal government somehow has claimed the west and we could go into that if if that's an interest but well i uh, yeah we can go into that a little bit for those that don't know and uh, enlighten me here um we started out with the homesteading act didn't the, i think the homestead act passed in 1876 didn't it uh right around that time correct uh, we you know, yeah. people, people were already coming out here, um, but they wanted to encourage more people to come out and, and claim land. Um, one of the duties of the federal government is to dispose of the land to the people, to get it into the hands of the people so the people can use it and benefit from it and uh, provide for their families and produce and trade and all of those things. Yeah, so the Homesteading so, Act was one oh, mechanism. Yeah, the Homesteading Act was one mechanism. You know, there was, uh, as it became more arid, the, you know, you get past the Rocky Mountains, it becomes more arid. So less people were claiming it. So they tried to encourage people more and more to come into these arid areas. So they did like, 
things like the Desert Entry Home Homesteading Act, the Livestock Homesteading or yeah, Homesteading Act. These were all like where they would give bigger parcels of land uh, in order to encourage people because you couldn't make a living off of just 160 acres in the in the original Homesteading Act. Then they, you know, T Taylor Grazing Act, and I could go on. These are all acts of disposal, trying to dispose of the the land and the resources into the people's hands, which is what is constitutional and what is right. Yeah, so the uh, Homesteading Act, like you said, encouraged people to go on the land and graze. And one of the stipulations is you had to be on this land. Anybody could go and claim a piece of land, but you had to produce, you had to grow crops, you had to ranch on it, like you said. And one of the stipulations was you had to do it for five years before the government would tell you, okay, this is yours. Am I correct? That's what I have read anyway. Yeah, you had to what's called prove up on it. You had to prove you were beneficially using it for a specific purpose. Uh, you had to do it for a period of time. And once you did that, then you can actually, you know, lay claim to it. And eventually, um, like, cert, like you know, certain homesteading acts and, and pieces of it, you, you could actually claim, uh, you know, deed, get a deed and it claim title to the actual real estate. In other cases, you actually claimed uh, certain rights, such as grazing rights, water rights, mineral rights depending on what the mechanism was, but ultimately those became private property. Uh, you, and they were deeded with the state or the county, at the county, recorded, the county would record it, and, um, or the state would record it, however it was handled, and that property became yours. Uh, and, and basically what's happened to is then the federal government, you know, in the 60s, 70s mostly, uh, they tried to come back on this and say, oh, well, we never disposed of it to the people. Uh, and so, therefore, we're keeping it ourselves. And for the most part, they've got it done to where now that they control over 51% of the Western United States unconstitutionally and over 72% of the subsurface mineral rights. When in most cases, they already disposed of it. There were already rights and deeds and everything else. And now they, through the federal courts, they basically have taken those away and claimed it for themselves. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but that's kind of in a nutshell what's happened. Well, let's go back Before to this dispute. Yeah, let's go back to 1936 when the government created ranchers boards, which by the way, uh, your dad told me he was on one of these ranchers ranchers boards at one time and for good reason. Uh, the ranchers boards were <laughs> created in 1936 because apparently the government said that the Homesteading Act was being abused. We can get into that in a little bit. And uh, we'll come around to this case, folks. Don't worry. Uh, we'll come around to Ammon's story here. But I think it's important to get some information, background information here. So we had uh, the ranchers boards created in the 1936 where... The ranchers got together in a certain area, in your case, Ammon, or at least in your dad's case, Cliven's case, it was in Bunkerville, or whoever had the land in 1936. Somebody in your family did, and they all got together and drew up lines, adjudicated who was going to ranch where, whose land, you know, the boundaries of a certain individual's land, and then the ranchers board submitted it to Washington, D.C., and it took about 20 years to adjudicate all this land. 
But shouldn't this have all been done by the courts instead of a board being created? Isn't that what the courts are for when things like this are being abused? No, it's not not what the courts are for. The courts are to, you know, they're, they're to find, you know, basically what happened. I mean, I, I go into the courts, but no, this was this is not a judicial issue. Uh, this was basically what happened was is, you know, these ranchers who had rights, they were mostly uh, adjudicated by the waters because you can't run cattle without water. And people recognize that, oh, that water there is used and owned by so-and-so. And the state registry allowed you to register the water and the grazing around the water. But the problem is, is, you know, the boundaries, there was no specific boundary. So there was some dispute between ranchers of, where the boundaries were. And some, since some of these ranches go beyond state borders into different states and beyond, you know, uh, the federal government uh, took it upon themselves to pass the Taylor Grazing Act in 1934. And ultimately uh, felt that, or the, the purpose was to, to adjudicate the boundaries of these ranches so that there would be no dispute. And uh, that would be, you know, clear that this was so-and-so's boundaries, this was so-and-so's, and, and that's what they did. But they felt it was better, which I agree, that the ranchers negotiated and worked out these boundaries themselves. There was also uh, some improvement funds that, that were tied to that, and we can go into that later. But ultimately, the ranchers, through these boards, got together and they decided, okay, here's a good boundary for your ranch and here's a good boundary for your ranch. And then all of that was documented uh, under the Taylor Grazing Act, 1934. And, uh, and basically everybody, you know, ultimately agreed upon it. There was some disputes here and there, but ultimately everybody agreed upon it. And so now everybody knew where their ranches were, the boundaries of the ranches. They knew what their rights. And, and what we're talking about is that rancher so-and-so owned the forage, the, the grazing rights in this boundary. And then the, the water rights were, were already registered with the state through the water registry of the state of Nevada or whatever state they were in. And that's how it was adjudicated. So there was no issue in, you know, after this process of whose ranch it was and whose water it was and all of that. Everybody knew that it was, you know, the, you know, Dave Bundy, my grandfather's, ranch and where his boundaries were and there was some fences put up and different things improvements made on it uh and that's part of the issue here is like look this was our ranch it's been our ranch it was our ranch before even the taylor grazing act um and now the but, federal government wants to come in and say that we never owned it that it always belonged to them and it's actually absolutely incorrect so let me just uh, clarify something real quick with the Taylor Grazing Act, uh, because the way I understood it, the ranchers <laughs> got together, like you said, and adjudicated these boundaries. And then I guess what, you submitted them to the state or something, and somehow the, the government in D.C. got a hold of it, and everybody agreed that this was your ranch, this is Dan Smith's ranch, whatever, correct? Yeah, there was a, I mean, I, I wasn't obviously alive back then, but there was a process that all those boundaries were accepted. They were documented. Um, and uh, the ranchers went for fourth, ran, uh, 
you know, ranching on those, those, that, that land. Okay. They had so to be tied, they had, there are certain rules. They had to have water and they had to be tied to a certain um, piece of private property. Right. These were all yeah. types of, you know, but these were already, already basically uh, already set and established even before the Taylor Grazing Act. Okay. Well, my, my understanding was this was created uh, because the way I, uh, the way your dad explained it to me was there was starting to be a lot of ranchers wars as who owned what land and people were getting killed over this. And so that's why the government said, you've got to have these ranchers boards to assign whose land is what and make it documented. Correct. Yeah. That's a, that's the process of adjudication. Yeah. I mean, okay. I don't know how many, there certainly wasn't any, you know, deaths or anything in, in the Southern Nevada area. I think in the West, there might've been some isolated issues where it did escalate to the point where there was conflict, but the, you know, basically there was a need to define the boundaries uh, to it, which is, you know, the adjudication process. Congress passed a law law to do that because they felt like they had the authority because a lot of these boundaries went beyond the states or you know went over state boundaries so they felt that they had the power to do that and then ultimately they used the ranchers to in these boards to to define it and it was adjudicated mm -hmm. so now let's go to the 1960s and 70s what happened? Because I know they got rid of the Homestead Act in the 1970s, but I actually talked to someone who grew up on a ranch, and your dad told me this too, that the government was starting to really bother you and harass you in the 1960s and 70s and beyond. Uh, what happened? Well, so in 1946, the Bureau of Land Management was established. That was under Harry Truman, by the way, for those that are curious. Carry on. And then, you know, and then they became a bureaucracy and they be basically became infiltrated with these, you know, extreme environmentalists um, to the point, and, and there's more to this too. Also, what happened is, is um, uh, you know, Nixon got called out on the, on the, uh, um, the gold standard uh, countries like France were, were wanting to basically collect, um, you know, trade their dollars for gold. And we didn't, we couldn't back it. And that caused trouble. So they're, they were looking for a way to, you know, uh, to collateralize or find something to collateralize the loans that they had with the rest of the world. Um, so, and between that and the environmentalists, uh, they passed uh, FLIPMA, which is the Federal Land Management Policy Act, and that was in 1976. And basically what they did is uh, they said that we own all these lands, not the people. And we own all the natural resources and not the people. And, uh, you know, they laid that right on top of all these other property rights. And uh, for the most part, they got away with it. There was a lot of... Um, uh, you know, generation gaps from one rancher to another, like my dad, from my grandfather to my dad. And uh, a lot of that knowledge of, you know, what, what the rights were, were kind of lost. And then you've got the, then it created a tremendous amount of fight or battle between the ranchers because they're going, hey, these, this is our land. 
And that's where you get the sagebrush rebellion. That's what started all of that. And ultimately, the ranchers during the sagebrush rebellion united and they united under one body. And ultimately, that body uh, compromised the rights of all the ranchers. Okay, so and for those that don't know, that, what is the sagebrush rebellion? Well, what it was is, is basically a rebellion against FLIPMA, the Federal Land Management Policy Act, in them trying to take the private property of the ranchers. Oh, okay. And, uh, and it, you know, it was a unity of ranchers basically saying, we're not going to let this happen. But ultimately what they did is they created like an association and um, that association went and negotiated with the federal government and the ranchers basically lost their stand and, and, and many of them, you know, kind of just gave up after that. And, and the, the FLIPMA was ultimately enforced and accepted in the West. And that's put us down a path, you know, of, of, where we, you know, where that led ultimately to 2014 uh, at the Bundy Ranch. So let's uh, talk about uh, 2014 uh, because, like I said, <laughs> people have forgotten a lot about who the Bundy family is, sadly so. I'm trying to keep it alive because I think your story is pretty significant. Uh, so walk us through what happened in 2014. I believe it was the Saturday night of general conference in april of 2014 if i remember am i correct uh that was part of it yeah okay and i have a theory i want to run by you uh, after you get done walking us through this uh through what happened on your ranch at that time well i mean just a teeny bit of background and in, in the late or the early 1900 or 19 uh uh, uh 90 you know 90s okay um, the federal court basically said that the land was all theirs and that we had to get permission to use it from them. And they upheld that, uh, or they not, not only upheld it, they made that decision. And my dad, of course, wasn't willing to just allow his rights to be taken. Um, 53 other ranchers in the area ended up, you know, losing their ranches. My dad is the only one left and he continued to ranch for, for, you know, from that time until 2014. Well, early 2014 in March, they, the Bureau of Land Management came in and said that they were going to enforce this order. Remember, this is now 20 years later. They're going to enforce the court order. And they came in and built a military base. It wasn't just the Bureau of Land Management. It was the um, U.S. Forest Service, U.S. Parks, uh, FBI, and they were directed by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, and, you know, there was five federal agencies involved and not including the U.S. Attorney's Office. And they built up military-type base about five miles from the, our, you know, our home. And, uh, you know, 213 armed men. They surrounded our, our ranch and uh, put it under siege and began uh, killing and collecting our, our cattle and destroying our water infrastructure. Uh, you know, beating us to the ground, uh, arresting, you know, arresting my brother, several, many things, killing baby calves out in the desert. And we began to do the best we can as, as exposing this and filming it uh, until ultimately, you know, thousands of people showed up. 
How did uh, how did people find out? Was it Alex Jones that broke the news uh, nationally? How did people find out? Because I, like I said, I heard about it through Brian Hyde, then other outlets started picking it up. Who who broke you it know, ultimately? There was several, you know, people that broke it ultimately, but you know, Alex Jones was certainly one of them. Uh, Pete Santilli was another. Um, but like my dad said, when they came in, you know, and we we're asking, you know, what do we want? What are, what are we going to do? And my dad was like, nothing. They're going to they're gonna get their hands dirty and talking about, you know, the, the Bureau of Land Management. Um, they're going to get their hands dirty and people are going to respond. That's exactly what happened. I mean, they body slammed my Aunt Margaret to the ground, to the asphalt from behind. She didn't even know the guy was coming. You know, they're up there with a backhoe tearing out our 100-year-old water infrastructure. You know, they're sickening dogs on pregnant women, um, killing baby calves, shooting cows from the helicopter. I mean, American people aren't going to put up with that for too long. And most of it was being filmed. And, uh, you know, uh, you can still go today and, and see all of that. They were digging mass graves and dumping cows in them. Um, you know, uh, they got what, you know, they, they caused it. They, they're the ones that caused it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I have a theory because uh, I, I understand – some of, a lot of this happened. I can't remember exactly what happened on uh, Saturday night uh, during the general conference weekend, but I understand that's when a lot of things took place as far as your cattle getting killed and the BLM coming in to have a military force. Am I correct? Obviously, some of this happened that's, before. But... That's when they started. And, okay. uh, you know, that's when they started the operation. Um, now, I have a theory. Uh, that night, obviously, was priest of meeting. I assume that you and your dad and many others were at church. Do you think that's why they chose that night? That's always been my theory, because they knew you'd be gone. Um, I, I, I do. I would not put that past that them. You know, it's interesting. When I was in Arizona, uh, living there, I Twice when I went to church, we kind of lived in South Phoenix. Well, we lived in Levine, South Phoenix. So, you know, we, it was a rural area, and then the city came and came up around us. And twice while my family was at church, our house was robbed. And, oh. um, you know, they obviously knew that we went to church and that we were gone for several hours. And, and uh, that's when they hit. And so is it – it's not far-fetched for me to, you know – think that they did the same thing and that they act that way. I mean, there was, you know, many people from the, you know, members of the church that are in the, you know, these agencies, uh, they certainly knew that we were, that we were, uh, we were going to go to church and go to the, go to the priesthood sessions and all of that. So was it the BLM that robbed your house or do you know exactly? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, thieves, robbers think that way. You yeah, know? they absolutely. do everything in the dark, you know, in secret when you're not there, when you can't see, and and that's how they, you know, and and until they feel like they're powerful enough, then they'll just blatantly come and take it. But, yeah. Now, some people would say, "Oh, why didn't you uh, put the security system on your house?" Well, uh, I've been out into the country, and correct me if I'm wrong, but. Most ranchers, at least the ones that I have, or most farmers, don't think of security systems or, oh, we're out in the country. We don't need locks on our doors because historically, 
robbers didn't really come out to the country. Am I correct in thinking this way? Cause that's well, a- yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's kind of a, a tangent. One thing that I have learned that, you know, a thief justifies himself in saying, well, that person should have stopped me or it's their own fault because they left the, the door open or they left the keys in their car or whatever. And that, you know, that's the thief mentality. It's absolutely incorrect. You know, it doesn't make it right, but somehow they justify themselves in that. So anybody who says, well, you should have had a security system and that it's your own fault, beware because uh, that's actually the way the thief thinks. Um, and anyway, I, you know, it's kind of off, but ultimately yeah. they, did, they did start on uh, Saturday. The, I, think it, I think Saturday was the uh, 5th or something like that, April 5th. And... Um, that's when they started the operation. Now they had set up their military base. It took 10 days to set up. It was a full on military type operation. And um, yeah, I just looked, so, it was April 7th, by the way, of 2014. Okay, anyway, yes. carry on. So anyhow, uh, that's ultimately how it became, we got national attention. Um, basically by filming their abuses and uh and you know people responded they weren't gonna allow you know supposedly their their own government to act that way to body slam you know 57 year old women who had just recovered from cancer you know tasing people sicking dogs on people killing you know you know killing animals uh, and uh, destroying you know you know, decades and decades of, of infrastructure, uh, even, even historically, they weren't just, they weren't going to put up with that. And so they started coming by, you know, by the hundreds and ultimately thousands. And, uh, and basically what I, what I see happen is they come and straighten the, the situation out. Uh, they made it uh, correct. Uh, they drove off the federal agents and, uh, uh, protected my family. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because this was going on for a good week, and then you picked Saturday. What uh, was the government supposed to do something on Saturday, April fourteenth? Because I remember Brian Hyde, who has been on my podcast, by the way, a <laughs> few times. Uh, he kept promoting on his show back then the ABC Perspective on AM fourteen fifty in St. George. Um, he kept saying, be there at April 14th. There's going to be a major protest. Was the government supposed to do something that day or why did, why did you all pick the 14th of April? Well, I mean, it was a Saturday, so people could be right. Um, you know, there was a need to show, uh, unity, uh, you know, and we had been trying to call the sheriff, you know, to, to act and, um, ultimately he agreed that he would be there on Saturday. And so with all those things together, you know, just it ended up being the right day and there ended up being, you know, a couple thousand people there. And, um, you know, the sheriff announced that, that the operation was going to end, that they were ending the operation and, and, uh, and then people asked, well, you know, were, were they going to leave? And he didn't know that. And people asked, well, are they going to return the cattle? Because at this point they had about 400 head of cattle 
our cattle that were in a, in the corrals up at the compound that they were guarding. And <clears throat> he didn't respond to that actually he didn't give an answer. And ultimately the people could see that this was just like a ruse that, that, that it wasn't what it was. And we know now after, you know, going through the trials and having all the discovery that they planned on just ending the operation for a few days until everybody dispersed and, you know, went back to their lives and then they were going to, uh, start the operation back up again. Ultimately, the people weren't satisfied with that, so uh, they went up to the compound, and uh, that's when we, you know, saw hundreds of guns pointed at us. Uh, they threatened us with, you know, with bullhorns um, that they would open fire, and um, and we also know that they had authorization from Washington D.C. to use lethal force. Now, uh, why do you think, I have my own idea, but I want your idea, this did not end up like a ruby ridge. That was my biggest fear as I was following this whole entire thing that week in April. Well, ruby ridge, they, they got away with isolating the family. Um, you know, that's the way they do. They'll demonize them, then they'll isolate them, and then they'll destroy them. And they weren't able to do this because... Uh, you know, we were able to stay for whatever reason, you know, we were able to stay public. We were able to stay in the public eye and, and tell enough people got there that they couldn't isolate us. They tried to demonize us. They didn't win in that, which is an interesting story. There was, you know, a PR battle going on. Uh, and actually the federal agencies that were there, they actually had a, a an entire facility, you know, one of those mobile command centers and an entire team that was there just to handle uh, um, propaganda, meaning they were going to put out, they, they had, a, a, you know, alias Facebook accounts, alias names, Twitter, all of that. And they also had what they called the First Amendment team that was going down into the, into the uh, protesters or to the Bundy supporters and trying to sway them. This was all part of their plan prior and a plan that they implemented during, but they lost that PR battle. And that's why, you know, uh, the people responded and, and because the people responded, they weren't, they were not able to isolate us. So, and therefore they were not able to destroy us is political warfare. Now I read um, somewhere that the reason why the government wasn't able to get away with destroy with destroying your ranch is because there was an article on infowars.com about how there was going to be a solar farm going through your ranch and once that broke then harry reed apparently called this all off and the, told the blm to go home is that true no that's not true at all Harry okay. never called them off. Um, the solar plant thing, uh, there was a solar plant for, uh, and it, with a Chinese corporation, but it was about 70 miles away from the ranch. Um, but, and how this affected the ranch, though, was that between, between the growth of Las Vegas, remember, Harry Reid and his son, Roy Reid, uh, are their developers, right? Uh, yes, they're heavily in real estate. In getting the Bureau of Land Management to dispose of the land to a developer, which is them, 
and then they sell the land to, uh, you know, they develop it and sell it to homeowners and they make millions and millions of dollars because they get the land for cheap from the government. Then they turn around and sell it for, you know, uh, prime uh, real estate property. Um, well, the problem is, is Las Vegas is growing and the environmentalists, remember, they're involved in all of this. And they're seeing that, you know, there's desert tortoise that are, you know, people are wanting to build their homes in their habitat. And so they negotiated between the growth of Las Vegas and the solar, uh, solar plants also, you know, because those slow, solar uh, farms, you, they get really hot, so animals can't live in them. And so between those two different uh, developments, um, Harry Reid negotiated with the environmentalists that they, he would find, not just him, but they would find a, a mitigation area to put the desert tortoise. Um, well, that mitigation area, they designate as the Bundy Ranch. Okay. And, you know, that was intentional, but, but that's how that all tied together. And now we, we know that ne they, never did put, they never put one desert tortoise. They went in a facility that they were going to monitor them. They got sick. And they ended up euthanizing thousands of desert tortoises. They spent hundreds of million dollars in this project, which no one knows where it went. They collected, that's where, you know, Clark County had the, uh, for every building permit, they collected a, a mitigation fee, a desert tortoise mitigation fee. And they collected hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and the county commissioners, you know, nobody knows where that money went. It's just disappeared. And yet they destroyed, so now they, they killed, you know, tens of thousands, well, I won't exaggerate, but thousands and thousands of desert tortoise. We don't know exactly how many. We've estimated about 20,000, but uh, they killed thousands of desert tortoise, collected hundreds of millions of dollars, destroyed 52 uh, ranches in the area, and uh, gained lots of power doing it. And, uh, uh, and not one desert tortoise was mitigated or protected in, in the meanwhile. And it just, you know, that just goes to show. And so that's how that all connected with the Bundy Ranch. Okay. And so the government killed all these tortoises before they were trying to put the solar, uh, the solar farm near your ranch. Well, they took them, you know, uh, off of these areas. They were going to take them off the solar plant area as well. To these facilities and evidently they, they said they claimed that the tortoise got sick when they were all together so they end up having oh. to utilize them all and uh, but uh, you know so the end with the solar plant but after the Bundy Ranch the Chinese corporations pulled out and decided not to do it and I imagine that was because of us and uh, shortly after that Harry Reid ends up with a black eye literally Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that because there was, a, I, I have to be honest, it was hard for me to follow what was going on. There was so much information coming out and it was hard for me to discern what was true and what wasn't at times. I had a yeah. pretty good idea, but I couldn't verify, yeah, this is exactly true. Uh, even Glenn Beck was notorious of treating you like crap, wasn't he? Yeah, Glenn Beck, you know, there's a history behind that. I am that. very disappointed with Glenn Beck, just so you know. I am highly disappointed. I'll get into that later. Well, and, you know, we've learned, and, and you can see when you get down to it, you can see, you know, Glenn Beck is, 
more uh, committed to the tremendous amount that he makes in his empire than he is in defending truth and, and liberty. Um, you know, and one of the things that happened is Glenn Beck contacted my family and, and was in communication with us during this time, the beginning parts of this in 2014. Um, he was, you know, in communication quite a bit and he gave my dad a lot of hope in that he was going to stand and, and help him clarify all of this and, uh, and help us out. And he started to do that. But what happened was, is that, you know, my dad was under a lot of stress under the, uh, through all of this. And uh, Glenn Beck wanted my dad to explain to him, you know, in detail. And he, he kept asking this over and over, you know, basically questions about the Constitution and how it applies and, you know, some like elementary things. And my dad was kind of frustrated and a little bit um, disappointed in Glenn Beck for not knowing the, the basics of, you know, basically the Constitution and these principles of liberty that, you know, so many have learned to, to, to understand. He was a little bit appalled by uh, Glenn Beck for just not understanding some of these simple principles. And he got frustrated with Glenn Beck and then Glenn Beck kind of retaliated back and then uh, then he ended up going against us. Um, Did he ever? And so, but it was all about basically his inability or lack of, of, of knowledge in my, you know, of the constitution and not willing to basically, you know, acknowledge and, and, and uh, accept that, you know, what was right, and what was wrong. And so, I mean, that's basically what caused it kind of a falling out, falling out. Now, you know, could have my dad been more understanding? Absolutely. Uh, he was under a lot of stress. Um, he probably shouldn't have, you know, responded the way he did. Well, but let did me ask you this. Uh, did you that, think- you know, what that, that, that make him wrong. That was the point, you know, no. And Glenn Buck should have saw that and should have said, you know, um, anyway, but he didn't. Well, I, I just wonder if Glenn was asking your dad all these questions just to see, make sure that your dad knew what he was talking about. Do you think that's why he was asking? Maybe he knew, but do you think uh, he wanted? Well, that's what we had hoped, but those weren't the type of ask questions he was asking. You know, I mean, we're talking about the you know simple principles you know that are found in in the Declaration of Independence. You know, um, those type of things that seemed that Glenn Beck wasn't very. Uh, you know, I don't know, he, he wasn't very astute to, I mean, and if he did, if he was, he didn't, he didn't seem to believe him and yeah. uh, at least understand him, I should say, you know, um, and that was very surprising to, you know, someone like my father. And then with the stress of all that was going on and the many interviews and, and so forth, he somehow ended up getting crossways with Glenn Beck and, and they had a falling out. And instead of saying, okay, look, you know, uh, Clive and Bundy is a, is a little bit, you know, well, he's under tremendous stress, you know, um, what's happening, you know, you got snipers on the hills. Rather than saying that or just working through it, um, he decided to openly go against my father. And, and then he's kind of, tried to ignore that ever since because it damaged him, you know, so much. And a lot of people, a lot of people lost 
faith and trust in him after that point, uh, rightfully so. And so then he's... I'm one of them, by the way. Yeah, so then he's just tried to, like, almost ignore that that it's happened rather than, you know, because, hey, Glenn Beck, have me on your show. You know, let's talk about the Constitution and the premise. Let's find out who is wrong. Let Let me show you the the deeds from the state of nevada that we own uh, let, let me go through the preemptive rights through the patent laws through all those things if you really want to find out who's right and right wrong then let's get to the bottom of it but uh it's too much of a taboo for him um because uh basically of the stand that he made against kind of against my family do you think uh, one of the reasons he turned against you is because of his advisors telling him to do so? Not that it's right, but do you think that factored into it? I don't. I don't think so. I wouldn't know for sure, but I don't think so because of how motivated he was to, you know, come in on this when during 2014. You know, uh, you know, I I really don't know. They could have, but. Uh, and also he didn't know, you know, everybody likes a winner, you know, at the time it was in the middle of the week, you know, he didn't know what was going to transpire. He, you know, he probably thought we were going to lose our ranch and maybe even get killed and, you know, be cast as, as, you know, the losers in this thing. And he, you know, maybe he wanted to be on the winning side and he chose the wrong side. I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, oh, before we leave the 2014 fiasco, were you surprised that the government backed down? Because um, I was, I remember being at a Verizon wireless store on Saturday, so I wasn't able to follow what was happening in real time. And I asked the person behind the counter, have you heard of anything that's going on in Bunkerville? And he said, no, but I understand there's supposed to be a standoff and I kind of filled him in, just wondering if he knew anything, because I was in the midst of transferring cell phones, and I couldn't keep up with the news at that time. Uh, Were you surprised that the government backed down? Because, to be honest, I was. Well, um, relieved, yes. Um, I, you know, had some, you know, experiences earlier that week that, Helped me understand that something significant significant was going to happen. I really felt and, you know, my family believed that we were going to in some way preserve our rights here and our heritage and our ranch and livelihood. And uh, how it happened, of course, we had no idea it would happen that way. We didn't know what exactly what was going to transpire. Um, so I don't know if surprise is the right word. Uh, certainly relieved. Um, certainly a blessing, a miracle. Ultimately, we had an, we had faith that, and and we really did have faith. So, you know you, that our rights were going to be preserved somehow in some way. We truly believed that. We felt it. We had many uh, you know spiritual experiences that testified to us that that's what was going to happen. And so we moved forward, not knowing how it would happen, but believing that it would. And, and we didn't know when, and it was a tremendous release, relief that it happened within a week, you know, well, seven days, right out of week. Yeah, I want to uh, talk real, um, I want to talk about uh, Burns real fast and then ask you some questions. Mm. 
because uh, I told you I'd keep you for an hour and a half. I really don't want to go over. I've been accused, I've been uh, chastised sometimes going too long <laughs> on the podcast. But if you've listened to any of these podcasts, these podcast, this podcast is panning out the way it's supposed to. Very conversational, very organic. Um, I'll just confess right now, some podcasts that I've done, I've done very little prepping for, and the podcast panned out just fine. So let's keep going. Um, let's talk about Burns, Oregon here. How did you find out about the Hammonds, and what possessed you to occupy the federal building in Burns? So first of all, the federal building is not in Burns. It's 37 miles, almost 40 miles outside of Burns. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Malheur Refuge, okay. Yeah, it's, it's okay. not in Burns, and that's important. I can you know, explain that later. But uh, So the Hammonds uh, came to my attention from different you know, people, you know, hey, have you heard about this family? You know, uh, this is after the Bundy Ranch in 2014. And so, you know, uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, I'm brought to the attention that there's a, a, a ranching family in – outside Burns, Oregon, that is basically experiencing many of the exact same things that we have experienced, uh, you know, as a family. Um, you know, I get into, you know, they, they were prosecuted for uh, burning grass on their property, uh, and a part of it jumped over the fence, the federal-controlled property, and it burned about an acre of, of federal-controlled land. Um, and then there was another fire that uh, was started by lightning and the Hammonds did a backfire on their property, never burnt any, and it actually stopped the fire. They did that to, to basically preserve their ranch and their, and they end up getting prosecuted for those fires because they did not get a permit from the Bureau of land management permission. Right. Yes. And they were, but they were tried as domestic terrorists, um, uh, under the anti, uh, uh, terrorist Death Penalty Act of 1996, and they were tried as, as domestic terrorists uh, under the arsenal section of that, which was an abuse of, of that, that act. It was never meant for that purpose. In fact, the laws, 1855 uh, U.S. Code, basically uh, makes it clear that if the ranchers own rights or if that they can't be prosecuted for burning the grass, but they ignored that. They prosecuted them. Uh, they found them guilty because, uh, you know, corruption in the court, uh, not, not allowing the, the Hammonds to, first of all, it's a federal court, uh, but not, not allowing the Hammonds to present the evidence, which is very common. It's what happened in, in our case and uh, ultimately got a, a conviction. And at that held a five-year minimum sentence so but the judge at the time said that five years for what they did which was really nothing and he even said that it improved the land he said would be a violation of the eighth amendment which is cruel and unusual punishment so he just sentenced, sentenced the father to three months and the son to 12 months they went and served that time they got out thinking that they could move on and that they you know that this terrible ordeal is over but then the U.S. prosecutors uh, wanted blood because the whole purpose was is to destroy the Hammonds so that they would uh, either sell or, or abandon their ranch and because they wanted to add it to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, uh, and which 
surrounded their ranch by about three quarters of, of their ranch. And this was their whole motive in the first place is they wanted that ranch through the, through the, uh, court process. They made the Hammond sign a, a first right of refusal. Uh, meaning they had to, if, if they sold, they had to sell it to the Bureau of Land Management. Really shows motive there. Ultimately, uh, they served their time, got out, went back to ranching. The prosecutors, you know, it wasn't enough. They wanted to take their, farm, their ranch. Prosecutors uh, went, back, went to the Ninth Circuit, overturned the judge's sentencing, and forced the ranchers to go back to prison for the remainder of the five years. Well, when I got involved in it, I began to do the research, find out the terrible things that they had done to this family. They'd stole their water rights. They'd stole, you know, three quarters of their grazing rights. Um, the only thing that was left was the actual private property, and it was very clear what they were trying to do. They were trying to put this family in such duress that they would either just give up uh, or that they would have be forced to leave the land. And then they had already put in place that the Hammonds had to sell the land to, to them, and they were going to add it to the refuge, the National Wildlife Refuge. Well, I'd seen this much of my life, understanding these you know, situations, and felt like it needed uh, attention. So I went to Harney County, to Burns. I communicated you know, to the sheriff, to the county commissioners, to the state legislatures, of what was going on, trying to get them to make a stand, trying to get them to see, you know, the injustice of what was happening. Many of them would admit that they could see the injustice, but there was nothing they could do. And then ultimately they stopped communicating with me, like just immediately. One, one time they're like, you know, one day they're opening, communicating with me back and forth and the next, next day they're not find out that the FBI had contacted them and actually uh, in, 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 in a way threatened them, said that if they continue to communicate with me, that, I, that they may be complicit in a conspiracy <coughs> against the federal agencies. And so they, they you know, sheriff, county commissioners, um, state legislatures, they're, they're all now afraid to communicate with me. And the many others, I was shedding a lot of light on it. So we're getting tens of thousands of people, you know, keeping, you know, informed. And, and ultimately, uh, it come to the point where the Hammonds were going to go to prison unjustly. State legislatures and everybody else was going to ignore it. Uh, tens of thousands of people were watching this. And it couldn't just be ignored. It was an injustice that could not be ignored. And so under, you know, inspiration, I, I felt very clearly of what I was supposed to do. I, I went to the Lord in, in great, you know, intent to know what I should do and how I should act. And I felt very strongly that I, we should go into the National, National Wildlife Refuge, which was 37 miles out of town that it would be a place that would be, you know, that we could go and we could bring a tremendous amount of attention to these abuses, to the Hammonds and to many others across the Western United States because of federal land control. And so we did that and we went in there and we uh, ultimately, you know, no one was there. We, 
we figured that no one would be there. It was January 2nd. Um, the, the place is typically known as there during the winter. And we figured that no one would definitely be there, you know, cause it was, uh, cause of the new year's, you know, holiday and all that. And so we went in there, no one was there and we just began to live there. And ultimately I'll just, uh, leave it there so you can ask any questions you want with, with that background. Yeah, um, so just to clarify, the Hammonds have been having issues with the BLM ever since, my understanding, 19, or uh, gosh, I want to say since, a, I don't know, 90s, maybe even earlier than that, because Susie Hammond asked a question in the city council meeting some time ago, decades back, about the birds or something about the birds. It's been a while since I've read the story. I did a podcast on it though with Jana Lee Tobias, who I know you know. And she asked a question and that ultimately pushed the city councils and the BLM's buttons. And that's really when their problems began. Am I correct? Uh, well, no, because they were well into the dispute. The whole reason why she brought it up in that basically the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 1974 did their own study, I think it was in 74, and showed that uh, 13 the, the migrating birds, because they were trying to ask the question of why the migrating birds weren't coming into the refuge anymore. And they were trying to blame it on, you know, everybody else. Well, she showed that the migrating birds, by their own study, was uh, 14 times more likely to land on private property than on the refuge. And also that there was almost... Uh, four times more ducklings and uh, being hatched on private property than there was on the refuge. And uh, basically what happened is there no use policy in removing all the ranchers. Cause there was a one time that refuge made up a hundred different ranches and they had drove all them off, pushed them all off, you know, the, through many different things um, to ultimately get control of, of those hundred ranches. Well, at one time they were private, and that's why the birds went in there because the, you know, the, the ranch ranching and the water and the cattle and the manure and the feed and all of that created a perfect habitat for the migrating birds. Well, the refuge, you know, U S fish and wildlife went in there and basically through force took it all over. And now, you know, 60 years later, they're asking why aren't the migrating birds coming this way anymore? And basically what Susan, Susie Hammond said was because you removed the reason for them to come. And that was the ranchers and the cattle and the feed and all of that. And uh, because these extreme environmentalists, you know, they have a no use policy, basically the man cannot use it. And so that's what it turned into a big old weed patch. That's what it is today. Well, she okay. Exposed that. She exposed that, but that wasn't the, the, the beginning or, you know, or of course the end of their problems where it really got really bad and where the, refuge personnel and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the BLM really was determined to remove the ranchers is when the Hammonds filed on some water rights and, and they did it legally and they got control of some of the water rights in that area that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service wanted but didn't go through the state process in order to get those rights. And that really, that really is what set them off. Uh, because the Hammonds were actually now had more rights than they did. And ultimately what they did is they just fenced those waters off, those springs off. They, the, the BLM just fenced them off, <coughs> kept the Hammonds from using them, uh, which okay. was completely illegal. 
completely illegal, but, um, you know, they're the federal government, right? Yeah. And uh, the Hammonds end up losing those waters and, and causing a tremendous amount of conflict. And it just was bad blood from there. By the way, you might be interested to know as a side note here, I personally know a guy who is a member of the church he used to be in the Oregon legislature. Uh, I can mention his name, Tom Butler. Do you know him? I, I don't off. Okay, because I talked to him when all this was going on, and he actually used to have to go. He knew the Hammonds quite well, and he would personally represent them during legislature, uh, legislative meetings in Salem, Oregon. <coughs> and he could very well be the reason why they, the government didn't get their whole entire way uh, is because of him. Now, this is long before you came on the scene. Sure. But let me go to, let me ask you a question about occupying the federal building in Burns, because I know a good friend of yours, who I can mention his name, because he does a podcast, Sam Bushman, was mm -hmm. very opposed of you doing that. Uh, you're still good friends, though. Um, yeah. How do you feel that he was opposed of it? And what exactly, did you feel like you've accomplished anything because uh, you got arrested, Lavoy Finnicum was killed. Did you do you feel like you've accomplished anything after that? Well, uh, so me going into the to the wildlife refuge, which again was not in Burns, it was in Harney County. Uh, yeah, okay, right? yeah. Uh, okay. That makes a difference because we had no intention to go and disrupt Burns. It was almost forty miles away. We were going into a remote. Uh, you know, wildlife refuge that was actually, anyway, we want to get into that. That one time was, was a private ranch. And so, and to bring attention, uh, did we do any good? We brought international attention to the situation, right? We've, we've changed, uh, we have changed the way that they even react towards ranchers, right? Uh, we, have we, have we resolved the problem? No, because we still have federal land control, uh, unconstitutionally uh, but then ultimately the Hammonds were pardoned uh, and they were sent home from federal prison uh, free of charges and they're able to live and and that you know that would not have happened if it wouldn't have got the attention that it got um, and uh, and and we've continued to be able to use the influence that that we gained uh, through that event We've been able to use it in many, many different cases. Uh, still today, we're, we're constantly helping people with property rights, ranchers, miners, loggers, um, even just those who own private property. We're constantly able, we're able to help them with our influence all over the West. And in fact, some out in, in the Midwest and even in the East. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and I think there's a lot more to come. Uh, I know that we made the right decision doing what we did. There was a lot of people that didn't understand it, including Sam, who have come to understand it more. And as time progresses on, as we see this consolidation of power into our federal, federal, into federal hands, more and more, our schools, our industries, our lands, our resources, you know, uh, more and more people will come to understand that the Bundys, including myself, were right in our action and that there should have been more of that going on, that there should be more of these type of actions in protest in open uh, non-compliance. Um, and because if we don't do that, uh, we, 
it'll progress until we lose enough power that we can't do that. And so that's where I stand on that. Yeah, so that invites a question here. Do you think that this country is going to be saved before the second coming? Because we've heard the quote, and now there's even now there's even dispute whether he even said this or not, that uh, Joseph Smith said the U.S. Constitution will hang by a thread. It'll be the elders of Israel that says it. Now there's interpretation. People don't even know if he said that. What is your uh, thoughts on that? Do you think this country will will get this country back before the second coming? Are we going to be completely destroyed and then the Savior comes? What's your take? Well, I, I, are you talking about the United States government? Are yes. you talking about well, the United States? No, I mean, because <laughs> I, I do not believe that they'll, that the, you know, Washington DC can be restored or fixed. <clears throat> it's, it's beyond fixing. Uh, I, I don't believe that yeah. it can be fixed. Uh, but what I do believe, and I, and I also don't believe in like, you know, a, a, a big rebellion to overthrow this government that, you know, I, I don't believe will be fixed. What I think is very consistent with the scriptures, I think that's going to happen, and I think it's, it's, it's the right thing, is that there's going to be a separation of the righteous. Uh, they'll have to be. And they'll separate, defend themselves. Um, I think that it'll probably be in the West. I think that's where the where it can happen. Um, and I think that that separation um, will be governed, if you will, by by the principles of the Constitution, and then the constitutional principles will be upheld, which are the principles of freedom. And I believe that it's very simple that that's what will happen. I think that uh, naturally. Uh, the elders of, of, of the church or the elders of Israel will be leaders in that. Uh, and that I think it will come down to the righteous, uh, not willing to comply and to participate in the wickedness that will go on and has been going on and is going on, and that they'll separate themselves, cre- create another defense system, and live uh, primarily free and safe under principles of freedom, which we find in the Constitution, and that will move us on into this, into the second coming and into the millennium. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like uh, it sounds like a book I read. You may have read it, "The Cleansing of America" by Cleon Skousen. What you're talking about sounds like something that he predicted. Well, I think you know we have, I, you know, I think he used the scriptures in that. I have read that as been a long time ago but uh i think you know the old or the new testament uh you know nephi's prophecies jacob's prophecies uh you know uh, others in the book of mormon i think clearly point to that um and you know and not only that as i see that as the only way in it in which it can really happen like People have to be free. Agency, liberty has to be protected. And I don't believe that in this land, in, you know, in, in this country, that the good people are going to be satisfied with living and, you know, for too long. Because I, I know they're complacent. I know there's a lot of complacency, a lot of apathy. But I think there will become a point where it will get It'll become too much. And I don't think it's very far out off, you know, to be honest with you. 
that they'll start to unite. And I'm not, maybe not a physically uniting at first or maybe never um, because we're pretty concentrated here in the West already, but a uniting of basically defending each other, um, a uniting of not non-compliance, uh, things like, you know, not being willing to let the fruits of our labor go into the hands of the wicked people, um, not being willing to comply anymore uh, to, to these, uh, you know, policies, regulations, uh, even quote unquote laws, if you, if you will, uh, not being willing to comply to them and uh, ultimately losing uh, confidence in the powers uh, of our existing government, I, I will, and, and uh, separating from that. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Um, where do you, because uh, I know Dellen H. Oaks talked about obeying the laws of the land. Um, and I do know, I keep, I hate to bring this guy's name up all, a lot because he's old news and not very well liked by a lot of people. Bo Greitz was excommunicated from the church, as my understanding. Uh, because, and I had this on good authority from Brian Hyde, one of the reasons was he didn't pay his taxes. Now, you've been treated fairly well with your bishop, is my understanding, and uh, I've talked to your dad. Uh, you've been treated very well by your bishop, stake president. First of all, I want to ask you, where do you draw the line between rebelling and Obviously, you didn't pay the your your dad didn't pay the grazing fees for, well, still hasn't. Uh, where do you draw the line? Because at some point, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, if I decide not to pay tax, if I decide not to do this, 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 and we all decide that, wouldn't there be an anarchy eventually? Because we would be lawless. Where do you draw the line here between rebelling? not paying taxes or whatever, and just living your life and not submitting to the wicked people in your mind, where do you draw that line? So I think uh, a study of Doctrine and Covenants 98 clarifies that. I think, you know, 101 also sheds a lot of light on that. And Doctrine and Covenants 45, um, in 98, it makes it very clear what, what the law of the land is. Uh, and what we're supposed to be friend. And it makes it very clear what man's law is and what God's law is and what the law of the land is. And, um, and I mean, it's, it's very, very clear. And he even says that anything more or less than this cometh of evil. And then he goes on to say, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. And so we have no obligation whatsoever at all to obey um, wicked laws laws that do, do not uh, support the principles of freedom, as, as Dr. Covenants 98 says. Um, and so, you know, I don't draw, draw it on my own, uh, you know, my own whims. Uh, I, I go to the, what the Lord has said, and he has made it very clear. Uh, and to, to, to say that any, anything that man makes, any, any law or legislation, uh, is is the law of the land is absolutely incorrect um um and the lord makes it very clear uh there's a process that you know has to go through if if it is to be considered law and it has to support the principles of freedom 
uh, to all men. And, um, and so that's where we, that's where we draw it. And that is what the law of the land is, is the constitution. And uh, if it doesn't support the principles of freedom, uh, then it's, it's not the, it's not the law of the land and it's man's law. And God says that that, that is evil becometh of evil. <clears throat> okay. So if, if somebody, let's just hypothetically speaking, decides I'm not going to pay taxes ever, ever, ever again, because this is evil, would you support that person? Well, uh, are taxes constitutional? Do they support the principles of freedom to all men? Well, um, even President Benson said taxes, we have to have taxes to keep our government going. I know he well, said that in one of his tax. books. The church doesn't tax. And it's a government and it's very strong and, you know, and, and in its funding and it, it functions on a, you know, a, a tremendous level uh, using the funds that have been freely given to them. Uh, and so to say that government can't function without forcing people to pay them, um, that's incorrect. Absolutely incorrect. We have many examples of, of governments or organizations functioning without force. Yeah, although I would say the church does have tithing, though. That's definitely how they fund the operation, and they should because they've got to make the money somehow. I agree, and I and I am grateful for that. And I I I I am a full tithe payer. I and I you know I I pay more than what you know what they expect. Uh, so I can because I trust the, the the church in in that in that, and uh, they're good stewards with it. But the key is here is I freely do it. I am not forced to do it. And mm -hmm. that is that is the key to all of this, um, and that we go back to the you know to the to the councils of heaven and the and and the war of agency over agency before we came to this earth. It was about force, about forcing, uh, not uh, you know not allowing people to have their agency, and so you cannot say that taxes and tithing are the same thing. Um, and you cannot say that tithing doesn't work and taxes do. Um, and so, and the only element between, really, the, the element that's different between the two of them is, uh, is agency. Oh, okay. Now, it's interesting, by the way, I want to go back to... Uh, I want to go to a talk that Ezra Tapp Benson talked about. Now, you probably heard it, a constitution, the Constitution <coughs> Heavenly Banner. He did say that uh, it will not be the general authorities of the church, and you already said, and I agree with you, it will not be Washington, D.C. It will be the, uh, the elders of the church. I think he meant just average people like you and me, and obviously others. It's not going to be just church members. Uh, what do you think of that quote? Because I think we automatically assume that the general authorities will take over and saving the Constitution. I don't think that's true at all. No, I don't either. I don't. It's not the. It's not the purpose of, the, or it's not the mission of the church, um, and it's not their duty and responsibility to do that. 
It is each, each of our individual responsibility to stand, uh, you know, for freedom and for our agency. And, um, and uh, so I, I think that's very consistent with, uh, you know, with the teachings of, you know, of the scriptures uh, and, uh, and the teachings of the church and the actions of the church and, and also, you know, the role that we see over and over again with the Nephites in defending their liberty. And so, absolutely, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Now, I do want to change topics just a little bit because we're, we are running out of time. What was yeah. it? Now, I know that this is a loaded question. You can answer this however you want. You were in solitary confinement. What was it like in there? I'd go crazy. I do just, I hate to say it, I do just about anything to get out of solitary confinement. Well, that's what they hope. Uh, and that's how they, you know, basically they, they require submission in order or otherwise you you're forced to stay in a concrete box and i i spent uh, nearly half of the year in 2017 in solitary confinement and it was very difficult um uh but you know i also know that you can find peace uh anywhere and i had to rely on that um and, you know, the Lord showed me many, many things while I was in there that I don't think I would have been able to, uh, or I would not have given myself the, been in the circumstance to understand those things. And uh, so for that, I'm grateful for, um, you know, he also, you know, he's fulfilled every promise that he made to my family and I. Um, and it's been, a, you know, ultimately a, a tremendous blessing and 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 uh, testimony builder to have those experiences do i ever want to do them again no were they terrible yes but you know i i know that god is who who delivers us and uh you know i we were in the worst place ever that that could be in this besides them killing us um we we were in the those circumstances that were you know basically the the worst circumstance that you could be in the worst punishment that you can you can have in this country and uh, and we were delivered and most people didn't think that we would be delivered i think and we were delivered and we were delivered in a miraculous way in both oregon and in uh you know and in uh nevada did you ever feel like giving up? Did you? Did, well, first of all, do you feel like the government was trying to do things to you while you were in solitary confinement to try to break you down and give up the ranch, the ranching business, or have your dad give up his ranch? Do you feel like the government was trying to do that and maybe cut deals with you? If, okay, if I do this, uh, I'll get out of this situation. Did 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 you feel like any of that was going on? Well, the the whole process is about breaking you. You know, you know spiritually, emotionally, even physically, um, so that you'll submit and, 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 uh, plea, you know, admit to something or plea to something that you didn't do, uh, just so that you can relieve the suffering. It's no different than any other, you know, torture. Uh, you go, you know, if, if you're, if you were being tortured in the gulags, you know, for something, you know, and they, 
they're using a hammer to smash your foot, which I'm grateful I wasn't in that situation, but they're doing it to get you to try to do something, you know, to admit to something you didn't do typically or to give up the names of a friends or whatever, even though, you know, whatever the reason were was uh, the same was with us. They were trying to get us to submit and, and break down so that we would admit to something that we didn't do. And ultimately they would win this battle and that include the ranch and, and everything else that we, we stood for. Yeah, so, well, I guess what I did, an agent ever come to you in solitary confinement and say, Ammon, I want to meet with you and fit you really good, because I've heard of this happening. You know, this happened in communistic countries. Someone went against the establishment for something. They were in solitary confinement. Lo and behold, an agent comes, says, I want to meet with you. Finally, you get to go out of sol solitary confinement, and if the weather's good, oh, I get sunlight. This is great. I haven't been out in months, and... Um, yeah, I get good food. Wow, I feel like I'm in heaven. Did any of that happen to you while you were in confinement? Someone come and say, oh, well, you get to have good food today or whatever, just to try to get you to submit? Well, they would come to the door with with the camera and two or four guys and say, if you'll submit, you know, then we'll let you out. Uh, and ultimately, you know, because you know they arrested my father. They arrested my, um, you know, three of my brothers, uh, and, and then they arrested, you know, several other people. I think there was all together in Nevada, like 16. And I think ever all together, it was 29 of us. And ultimately many of those, uh, those individuals that were arrested, most of, most of them, we didn't even know. Uh, but many of them did take pleas because of that. They put them under great duress and then they would come to them and say, Hey, look, we'll let you out if you would, you know, admit to this, uh, and that, that happened, I think about, you know, I know, uh, six or seven ended up, you know, going that route because they just felt like they couldn't take it anymore. Now, does that bother you that they went that route? Well, the problem is, is see, uh, it makes it so the Lord can't protect them because they chose, you know, so now we, we were freed free of all charges, you know, and home with our families. And they took some plea and ended up being felons, but they got out earlier, you know. Uh, but now, well, not all of them, though. Like Jerry DeLamis, he didn't even come to the ranch uh, until a day later. But somehow they arrested him, and he ended up pleading about a little over a year into it. And they, uh, but at that time, they were uh they were trying to put us in prison for the rest of our lives. He pled to seven years and took a felony is a U.S. you know, Marine that served, you know, his country. Well, um, I think he's like 60 something years old, uh, you know, or almost 60 years old. And now he's serving a sentence, uh, for a seven years, eight year sentence. Um, he would be home with his family if he would have stood strong. Uh, I don't, blame him and I, I don't I love him and it's wrong what's happened to him tremendously wrong but on the same hand uh, he should have never admitted to something he didn't do and he should have allowed the Lord to protect him um, and he would be home with his family right now yeah um, now I just want to ask you a couple questions do you think uh, if it wasn't for Matt Shea who blew the whistle I don't know how he got his information but he blew the whistle about the what we talked about earlier, the BLM setting an army up at your ranch and 
Dan Love apparently bragging about how he got people to commit suicide. I don't know how he got all the information. Is Do you think that's why the uh, Judge Gloria Navarre in Nevada lets you off and dismiss the trial with prejudice? I think that's a piece of it. Um, that was from a whistleblower from inside the government. We had that document. Um, Matt came out with a uh, public first, uh, which I'm very grateful for, and it shows his, you know, bravery. He's under um, a lot of flack now, but anyway, it would have, yeah. It, I mean, it would have, it would have come out, and uh, but it was never talked about in the court. Um, really? No, it was never discussed in the court. Uh, I'm not uh, surprised. Because our case I read was actually about your case. Uh, our case was actually uh, we were released. So the case was falling apart, but I don't think it was dismissed. But we were already released when it came out. And it was just a, a, another piece of this, you know, exposing or the light being shined on this wickedness that made it so they had to release us. And it was, it, you know, all of this, this and many, many other pieces were, it was, is a miracle in the sense that, it, but it's just how the Lord works. Uh, and how he protected us. And it was something that we could see happening in the future. And I mean, it was, it, it was a wonderful, beautiful thing, hard to go through, but um, it was how the Lord protected us. And that was a piece of it. Three more questions and I'll let you go. Cause I know you have things to do and I promised you, I wouldn't keep you for much longer than an hour and a half. Um, Mary Lynn, who I believe is your brother David's wife, correct? Correct. Yeah, Mary Lynn was on a show on Cairo News Radio in uh, Seattle, Washington. And she, somebody, a talk show host asked, why are the wives of your, uh, of your husbands not in prison? Or how come they haven't gotten any women in prison? And she said something I want your opinion on. She said, if the wives were in or the women and the wives were in solitary confinement or something, America would go berserk and the government would not get away with it. Do you think she's right? Absolutely. And they didn't arrest my mother and my wife, you know, my wife and my brother's wives and all that simply because this was a political prosecution and the PR move would have been too risky for them. Cause they, I mean, we, we, we never did anything wrong. To, you know, in any of this, I mean, the things they accused us of were just incorrect and ev everything that we did, we did as a family. So, you know, if one, if one person would be guilty of what they accused us of, well, the others would, but it, but it was just too much of a PR uh, disaster, you know, for them to yeah. arrest the, the women. Now I know that and it, they... was great, it was a great blessing for us because our children, you know, there's 26 children that just in our family alone that didn't have their father's home. And if they didn't have their mother's home either, it would have been just even that much. I mean, it would have been, you know, so difficult. Yeah. Um, I know the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals wants to retry the whole case. Do you think they'll do it? Because my theory is since Donald Trump's president, it's not happening under his watch. Now, I could be wrong. But do you think they'll ever retry it? And what would happen if they did? Um, so it's the 
the prosecutors who were accused of, of prosecutorial misconduct, gross, willful misconduct, they're the ones that have appealed it to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the Ninth Circuit hasn't uh, taken argument on it yet, just briefings. Uh, in March, they'll take arguments. And basically, our case was dismissed with prejudice, which means they're not to be able to bring it up again, ever again. But if they can get the Ninth Circuit to overturn the judge's dis the decision, either with prejudice or the dismissal altogether, then they can try to retry us. And, uh, but I'm, I'm not gonna speculate on that. You know, uh, Judge Navarro, you know, did her due diligence before she dismissed the case. Uh, she dismissed it on, you know, solid grounds. She could see that the prosecutors were, you know, doing anything to win is some of the terminology that they were, you know, unscrupulous that they were the things that they were doing were you know just terrible uh, you know that's a simple way to say it um and so therefore she had to dismiss it plus a lot was going to be exposed uh, uh a lot more i mean you know a lot of the fbi stuff was covered up uh their actions all of the Wooten letter, the whistleblower that you were talking about with Matt Shade, all of that would be exposed, and many, many other things uh, that was going on and have been going on weren't even talked about in trial. So, you know, they take a risk of all that being exposed. What they'll try to do, though, uh, is they'll try to have a trial and not allow any of that in the trial because that's the way they win. Uh, that's how they win. Um, they basically eliminate the truth in the trial then the jury finds you guilty um and everybody thinks that justice was served that you know that the jury made their decision and we were found guilty and everybody goes home and goes back to you know work and dinner and watching watching their favorite sports Okay. Yeah. That, that, and so you, you're not sure if they'll be successful, then you're not going to speculate whether they'll be successful this time. No, I do believe that the Lord will protect us no matter what I've seen it and I believe it. And if they want to go another go at it, I think it'll be just a greater opportunity for the Lord to expose the wickedness that is going on in, in our, in our judicial system and with our, you know, with our, you know, federal government in general. Yeah. Uh, do you think uh, Judge Gloria Navarro had a change of heart, or do you think it was political that she dismissed it? Because I read a little bit about your case on your blog. I don't know who's doing your blog. Some family member, I assume. Um, and the, the words weren't certain words, like the Constitution. Certain things were not allowed to come out in the trial. Do you think she had a change of heart or do you think she just dismissed it because she was under pressure politically? Um, to be honest with you, I think both. I do, you know, spiritually I felt multiple times that she did feel a conflict here. She typically has been more of a, a judge that, you know, has been, Anyway, I, I'll just say this. It was clear that the government needed to get out of this because what was coming out in the, tr in the, in the trial. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it needed to be, you know, stopped or more was going to be exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also the level of what was happening was even alarming to her. And uh, so I do think that she, you know, was disgusted by the actions, uh, you know, at the level that they would, they were willing to go through both the FBI, you know, and all the federal agencies and the U S attorneys, the level that they were willing to go through to try to, you know, put us away for the rest of our lives and destroy our ranch and all of those things. I think when it was finally out in the open of what, was going on i think even she was disgusted by it yeah well that's uh yeah i i, I wondered that well, last question uh, what is your favorite part of being lds and do you have a calling and if so what i serve in the young men's oh right um and uh my favorite part of being lds i think are the the great people that we get to associate with because of that and get to know and no matter where we move or uh, there's always a family there. And, um, uh, I have, you know, and besides that, just the great truth that w- that is available to us, the scriptures that teach us so many things. Um, and, and the, the amount of scripture that we have and that we know to be, you know, accurate and to, and to teach uh, the true principles in which, why, which we are here on this life and where we came from and, and what will transpire after. To have those truths and to, to be confident in them and to have them bring us to, you know, the understanding of, of Christ, what he has done for us. Uh, the ability to be forgiven and and ultimately benefit from all that has gone on in this life, uh, I would have to sum it up to to all of that. Um, I'm grateful to be a member of this church and to have the great truth that uh, the that is available to us. Yeah, that's a very Good point. Well, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I do want to talk to you a few minutes after the podcast, but uh, thanks very much for being on the podcast. And uh, I will probably do another podcast before the end of the year. I will talk to you later, everyone.